Welcome to the Herbs with Rosalie podcast, a show exploring how herbs heal as medicine, as food, and through nature connection. I'm your host, Rosalie de la Forêt. I'm an herbalist teacher and the best-selling author of the books Alchemy of Herbs and Wild Remedies. I created this podcast to share trusted herbal wisdom so that you can get the best results when relying on herbs for your health. I love offering up practical knowledge to help you dive deeper into the world of medicinal plants and seasonal living. My goal is that you'll walk away from each episode feeling inspired to start working with herbs in your everyday life. Each episode of the podcast is available on my Herbs with Rosalie YouTube channel, as well as your favorite podcast app. Transcripts and recipes for each episode can be found at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com. To get the latest news as well as fun bonuses, be sure to sign up for my weekly herbal newsletter. Okay, grab your cup of tea. Let's dive in. Wow. This interview with Sean Shaw was so good and covers so many important issues, whether it's about holistic cancer care, the benefits of sunlight, or even the controversy surrounding lymphatic herbs. Her new book, Holistic Cancer Care, needs to be on everyone's bookshelf. It's an impressive and helpful book for anyone who's ever been touched by cancer, and even those who want to prevent it. Sean Shaw is a medical herbalist and has been in clinical practice for 35 years with a specialty in holistic oncology. She's the author of Fibromyalgia, A Journey Towards Healing, and her latest book, Holistic Cancer Care, An Herbal Approach to Preventing Cancer, Helping Patients Thrive During Treatment, and Minimizing the Risk of Recurrence, launched in April. She held the faculty chair in botanical medicine at the Boucher Institute of Naturopathic Medicine in New Westminster from 2004 to 2016. She serves on the board of advisors of Dominion Herbal College in Burnaby on the editorial board of Medical Herbalism, Clinical Newsletter, and she publishes widely in professional journals and lectures internationally on medical herbalism, nutrition, and health. Shanshal is also certified in Shinrin-yoku forest bathing, is a certified master gardener and a certified horticultural therapist. She lives on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, where she and her husband manage Innisfree Farm and Botanic Garden, a seven-acre internationally registered botanic garden specializing in food and medicinal plants, and where they host apprenticeships in sustainable food production and herbal medicine. The farm also hosts Gardens Without Borders, a federally registered not-for-profit society established to run the Botanical Garden, and provide horticultural therapy. Well, welcome to the Herbs with Rosalie podcast, Chantal. Thank you. It's great to be with you, finally. Finally, yes. I am so looking forward to having you on the show. We connected years ago at, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but Botanicals at the Beach or a Northwest mm-hmm. Herbal Gathering, and that was lovely. And then when I saw that you were writing a book, a Holistic Cancer Care, I was, I mean, I just jumped on it. You announced it last fall and I immediately wrote back and said, I hope to have you on the show. And now that I've seen the book, it is absolutely phenomenal. It's such a gem and it's going to be a treasured resource that's going to help so many people. I just can't imagine the work that went into it. And I'm so grateful. I'm really looking forward to talking all about the book. But before we do that, I thought we could start by hearing a little bit more about you and how you found yourself on the herbal path. Mm-hmm. 
Gosh, I almost could say, Rosalie, that I don't know if I was ever not on the herbal <laughs> path. <laughs> My first garden, I was about three years old and I had one of those big old white stone sinks that my dad set up with some soil and I put nasturtiums in and I grew nasturtiums and they bloomed and I was so excited and I got to eat them, although I didn't really like vegetables at the time, but I was going to eat my flowers, you know. <laughs> and then as a young girl, I grew up in the countryside and um, quite, quite remote actually in West Wales. And I had a pony because everybody there had a pony. It wasn't a fancy thing to have a pony, just a little farm pony. But I would take that pony and go off riding for the day and pick flowers and press them and then look up their Latin names. And I had all scrapbooks, several scrapbooks with pressed flowers in their Latin names. I was like eight or nine years old. Unfortunately, my mom cleared them out one day in a move and they went. Hmm. But that was my start. I was always interested in plants. I always talked to the fairies at the bottom of the garden. And when I was about 14, my dad got quite sick and he consulted with David Hoffman, who was a new grad at the time. And David was very gracious. And my dad told David that I was interested in herbs and plants and could David sort of take me under his wing a little bit? So I went and watched David pouring out tinctures. David came to the farm and my parents had a small farm and helped my dad identify some of the plants, which he went on for almost another 40 years picking for himself. And so, yeah, I got my start very early. I didn't know that you could be a herbalist. I mean, obviously David was a herbalist, but I never really clocked that that could be my choice. And I ended up finishing high school and going to live in India. And I was in India for almost two and a half years. I traveled a lot extensively all around the country alone, which was quite formative. And then I landed in a TB clinic in Dharamsala, well, near Dharamsala in the north. And it was a TB clinic for Tibetan refugees. And I didn't know at the time that seroconversion was an incredibly exciting thing to experience with TB. Like you're not meant to get seroconversion in modern medicine, but hey, they were achieving that with traditional Ayurvedic and, and, and Tibetan medicines. And it was sufficiently interesting to me to realize that between my dad's experience, my love of plants and what I could see in that clinic. And I was just a general helper. I mean, I slept on a bedroll in a corner and I had chapatis and dal twice a day. And I just did, you know, as a volunteer basically in this clinic. But it was exciting enough for me to say that there really maybe is something here for me. So I went back to England in my early 20s and looked at lots of different schools, actually. I looked at Chinese medicine and osteopathic medicine and homeopathy. And I landed on herbal medicine. I kept coming back to the herbs. It just felt like a really, no pun intended, but a really grounding thing, you know, really rooted in a way. So I went to herb school in my early 20s and never looked back. Hmm. And what eventually brought you over to North America? Oh, well, that was love. <laughs> <laughs> I met a fellow. I actually went back to India, finished herb school, started a clinic actually in Glasgow. And I ended up going back to India just for a month to go to a meditation camp. And I met a fellow there who was actually from Vancouver, South American, but living in Vancouver. And we just became pals, really, and pen pals for quite a while. And finally, he said, you know, I'm going to go to South America for the winter. Would you like to come with me? And I'm like, 
yeah, I'm in Glasgow and I'm not loving being in Scotland in the 80s. It was not as it is today. And I just took the opportunity to leave the UK and strike out in a new world. And it was very exciting to land in Vancouver. 1988, I came into Vancouver. Of course, there was a lot of native healers doing traditional sort of shamanic medicine, mostly underground. There were a few TCM practitioners, but it wasn't licensed. And naturopathic medicine had just been licensed in British Columbia. And so there were no Western herbalists at all, none. And I well remember a very leading naturopath of the time. I had one contact from Scotland. A practitioner I knew in Scotland knew a a naturopath in Vancouver. So I had a lunch with that gentleman shortly after landing in Vancouver. And I remember so well him saying to me, you can't practice as a herbalist in Canada. It is illegal. You will be shut down. You'll have to go to naturopathic school. And at that time, Bastier had offered me a two-year fast track, which I don't think they offer anymore. But even that, for me, I had zero funds. I I mean, I and I had no way to get student loans in North America. So I did not take up that offer. And I continued to do my work and practice and work within my scope. And I have been allowed to do that without having that naturopathic license. So I'm here to say that herbal medicine can be a viable profession and a viable career choice. Hmm. And you really practice herbalism in so many beautiful ways. I'm wondering if you just mention Innisfree Farm and just what your world looks like today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I had a very conventional herb school training, very Western medical model, very biomedical. You know, we learned how to read bloods and even do blood draws ourselves in the UK. We were licensed for that. And lots of constituents and herb drug interactions and all of that. And it was wonderful, of course, and I draw upon that every day in clinic. But when I had been in practice about 15 years, I realized, and I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, but I actually discovered I was bored. So yeah, maybe bored isn't quite the right word, but I wasn't stretched anymore. I wasn't learning in the clinic anymore. I knew that I could help somebody with herbs, could help somebody with menopause or asthma or eczema. And that was of course, incredibly gratifying. And I stretched myself in other ways by setting up retailing and manufacturing and education services and all kinds of ancillary things. But as a clinician, I'd reached a point after about 15 years when I needed some new challenge. So I took myself back to school and I did a Master of Science in Herbal Medicine at the University of Wales. And that was a huge challenge academically and fitting it into life. For me personally, there were two big things that came out of that. One was an understanding of using herbs in cancer, which has led to recently writing this book. But the second thing that happened in in the master's program that really changed the way I approach herbal medicine was that I had an opportunity, and I am talking now over 20 years ago, um, I had an opportunity to take a plant spirit journey with ayahuasca from South America. And I did it in a very, very intensive setting with just myself and the Ayahuascaro, the shamanic practitioner, on a 10-day one-on-one retreat in silence, in fasting mode, like really out in the bush in a cabin, super intense. It wasn't a, hey, Saturday night, let's go and party. Not at all. It was extremely profound experience. And it completely changed the way I relate to herbs. It actually 
enabled me to slow down enough to listen to the herbs instead of imposing this top-down educational model i'd been inculcated with i reframed the whole approach to herbal medicine which was a much more inquiry based a much more curiosity based approach to herbs and that for me led me straight out of graduate school into yet another qualification another training which was in horticulture therapy so the work i do now is a blend of Western biomedical model, clinical herbalism in a very medical sense, really. I'm definitely working with blood work and scans and you know drugs and all these things, mostly in cancer care. But on the, the, the other aspect of my work is very much about being in the gardens, being outside with the plants both myself but also my my patients so i work really hard now on trying to deepen people's relationship with plants and you know fundamentally behind all of that i see the role of the herbalist as an incredible opportunity to connect people with plants in such a way that they actually care enough about the environment the plants grow in to do something active to help the environment so really i see herbalism as an extremely effective form of activism and i consider myself an environmental warrior an environmental activist through my herbal medicine work. Although my work is quite conventional in the sense of I'm talking to doctors a lot and writing up medical reports, every single patient in my practice, whether they want it or not, every single patient gets a tea. And it's a custom blended tea. It's actual herbs, not a tea bag. It's not fine cut sift, it's actual pieces, most of which I'm growing or wildcrafting. I grow and wildcraft well over half the herbs for the teas now. and. So people have to actually see plant material and engage with it as part of their healing journey. And my hope is not only will they become well and healthy and healed, but that that will waken them up to the importance of plants along that journey and the value of plants and the need to preserve the environments in which the plants grow and to use them responsibly and practice sustainably and all those things. So really, my hidden agenda, maybe not so hidden, is about saving, oh gosh, this sounds a bit highfalutin, doesn't it? Saving the planet, is that my job? I don't know, but helping people to engage in activities that may help us to survive better on this planet through the medium of herbal medicine. So for me, it's a lot about getting them, yes, drinking their teas, but also possibly, I do a lot of forest bathing therapy work. So I teach people to, to walk quietly in the woods, to listen to the trees, to sit with the plants, just to be more appreciative of nature as part of the healing journey, not just ingesting herbs, but nature as part of the healing journey. So I've been in Japan, trained in Shinrin-yoku. I took my certification as a horticulture therapist, and I find those tools to be extremely powerful in the work. Hmm. I'm curious, Shanshao, when people come to you as patients or clients, do they know what they're getting into? Like, you know, are they coming to visit you as an herbalist and as an earth-centered being? Or is it, you know, kind of like end of the road? Or, you know, what is the person who comes to see you? Like, what's on their mind? Why Great they question. I would say that well over 80% of my work is cancer-based. So most of my patients now have cancer. 
So in most of those cases, I could say that they have come to me after trying other things, either conventional and or complementary medicines. Most of my work now is by referral. I don't market my clinics. It's all word of mouth and it's mostly referrals from other practitioners, meaning cases that they've got stuck on or need further ideas and input. So my caseload is very complex and those people are often in quite dire straits. They're quite desperate. They're in pain, in fear and suffering. They're often financially challenged because they've been sick for a long time, haven't been able to work, etc. So when they come to me, they're typically quite ready to do the work. They've typically been prepped and primed by previous experiences to be ready to do the work. Occasionally, I do get someone who's freshly diagnosed. And of course, what also happens is you'll have a client who maybe comes for, you know, menstrual issues or eczema or whatever, and you help them. And 10 years later, they get this dreadful diagnosis and they'll come back to whichever practitioner it was that helped them with whatever else they had. So I often am working with people who are quite committed to the herbal path and quite willing to do what it's going to take. It still takes a bit of encouragement. Of course, we ask a lot of our patients in terms of taking stuff, but also doing things. So asking them to walk in the woods for an hour a day is actually a really hard prescription for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, so we customize everything to each individual. Yeah. Well, thank you for that introduction to your life and how you're practicing now. And I'm really excited to talk about your book, Holistic Cancer Care. There are so many gems and this book is just so incredibly ranging from some, somebody would get a lot out of it if they wanted to prevent cancer and stay healthy. Some of it, someone who's been diagnosed with cancer will get a lot out of this book. And it's also, there's so much in there for practitioners too. So it's very wide ranging in that. And I really love the opening pages and talking about this kind of this umbrella of holistic oncology versus conventional cancer, what it is to be a tumor-centered approach versus a patient approach. So I'm wondering if you would kind of expand on that a bit Mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of words get thrown around and everybody has a slightly different interpretation. So holistic, let's just start with holistic herbs first. Notice I'm pronouncing the H. (laughs) That is because we use the whole plant with the H. So in my practice and in the book, I worked very hard to explain how it is that herbalists use plant medicines, research uses isolates, purified, even synthetic compounds administered in ways which a clinical herbalist would never use into animals that have been bred to have cancers and so on. So there's a huge gap in, you know, I'm being a bit cheeky saying we use the whole herb, including the H. I actually should give credit for that little joke to Keith Robertson, who's a herbalist in Scotland, who first said that when he was teaching out here and someone asked him about the pronunciation. But it's kind of tongue in cheek because it's true. A, A holistic practitioner is might use isolates, but so for example, a really clear example, Artemisia annua, one of the most popular and most widely used herbs right now in cancer care, also showing great benefit in various bloodborne parasitic conditions, including Lyme's, 
But the research is very, very clear that whole herb extract has greater value than isolate. So if you just use artemisinin or artesunate, which is being injected intravenously now, this is obviously not holistic. Taking an isolate, a singular sesquiterpene lactone from the plant and injecting it has nothing to do with traditional herbal medicine. So the research again is very, very compelling now about how the flavonoids make the sesquiterpenes more bioavailable. So I'm not saying artemisinin doesn't work. The research is very good. But what I am saying is it would be better if it was given with the whole plant. So that indeed is what I will do now. I will use isolates because there's compelling research. The patients may have read some of that research or they may want to go and talk to their doctors about what they're doing and having that research in hand is very useful, but it's very incomplete, inadequate. So I will then give the whole plant alongside, or I even will find a supplement brand that has isolate and whole herb. So that as I'm trying to mimic nature as much as possible while not discarding the contemporary research, which is very strong. It's very mechanistic, but it's still very strong and compelling. And as I was writing the book, I tangled myself up again and again in trying to make that leap from here's all the research and here's what we see in clinic. And at the end of the day, evidence-based medicine is what it's really all about. And I can tell you that in the book, every single thing that I write about in that book, I've seen and done in clinic. There's, I, and I left out a bunch of important and interesting stuff because it's not my experience. It's not my lived experience in my clinic. And I felt that was kind of a, an honesty place for me to be able to say, you may not agree with everything I'm saying in here, but this is my experience. So holistic to me doesn't just mean trying a bunch of different disciplines. It's about addressing the person. So it might be that you're only doing one therapeutic modality, but if it's, it's holistic, if you considered all the implications for that person. So holistic doesn't mean that you have to have 10 different modalities to offer a patient. It's about, are you treating a disease or are you treating a person? And so the person-centered or patient-centered approach means, okay, you've got a diagnosis of cancer. How does that show up in your life? What does that mean? How does that affect your day-to-day -day experience? How do you integrate that into your psyche? How does that affect your spiritual life? Oh, and by the way, we have some strategies that we might be able to offer that might mitigate either the cancer itself or some of the side effects of other treatments and those things. But what's really interesting is you know, 10 women with breast cancer are going to have 10 different lived experiences of that cancer. So if you just treat the cancer, then you will get, you know, in Canada, you'll probably get adriamycin and doxyrubicin. America has left that combo behind because it doesn't really work. So they might get carboplatin and paclitaxel. But that's assuming that all those 10 women have basically the same cancer. Just because it's, you know, estrogen receptive, HER2 new positive breast cancer does not mean they all have the same experience. Some of them have 
pre-existing heart disease or risk of heart disease, and they shouldn't be taking the doxyrubicin. Some of them have got life challenges where, you know, maybe they've got little children and they're a single parent and they can't be flat on the couch with chemo. Maybe that's not their best choice. So tumor-based medicine gives more or less one size fits all. You're a, a cog in the machine, whereas patient-centered medicine, regardless of what the medicine is, it's about who are you? How is this disease showing up for you? And what will serve you the best? So it's really about the patient. And that ideally should bring us around to what I like to call collaborative medicine, which is bringing all the players to, wouldn't it be nice, to a round table to talk about everything that could be offered for this individual. So that would include, yes, their oncologist, their nurse practitioner, their massage therapist, their husband or wife or support person, their herbalist, oh, and the patient. Maybe they have an opinion about what will work or not work or how they could implement some of these things. So a patient-centered approach, we go back to that very old quote, about it is more important to know what kind of person has a disease than what kind of disease a person has. So simple, so profound. Mm. You must like quotes because you have some excellent quotes throughout the book. I collect <laughs> I was, quotes. I have. A you whole, do. I was wondering. I was like, how did she find these amazing uh -huh. quotes? Yeah. Yeah. I collect yeah. them from all over. Yeah. Well, they are definitely well done in the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, next, there's just so many gems in the book. I'm just so excited for everybody to get their hands on a copy. And there was just some things that like jumped out at me. That I was like, oh, maybe we should talk about that because I hear people talk about it a lot, often with questions. And one of those is this correlation between sunlight. Well, I don't want to say it like that, but sunlight, cancer, sunscreen, just that <laughs> whole big ball of mess there. It is a bit of a mess. And I do have a little section on it in the book because it does come up a lot. So I think what we need to consider here is that we as humans, we make vitamin D from the action of sunlight on cholesterol in the skin. And if we don't get sunlight on our skin, we would need to get our vitamin D through our diet. And in the fat-averse world that we live in today, where, you know, fat in the diet is considered to be somehow bad, many, many people don't get enough vitamin D in their diet because we're not eating a lot of animal fats. And even if we eat the animal fats, it may not have much vitamin D in because of what the animals are fed on today. So being fed grain makes a very different end product than being eating grass, right? Mm -hmm. So, as a peoples, generally, we tend to be, at least in North America, we tend to be vitamin D deficient. And especially in these northern climes, you're in the Pacific Northwest, as I am, and it's a rainy day out there. And even if it was sunny, the sun isn't at an angle to actually get into the skin properly to make the vitamin D. And it's cold, so we're bundled up. So we have little to no sun exposure for many months of the year. And when we do have strong sun and could be making vitamin D, we wear sunblock. The problem with sunblock is that it does block the superficial surface rays, but it doesn't stop the deeper rays from penetrating. And it is in fact those superficial rays that give you the reddening 
that is the early warning that you're going to do deeper damage if you stay out in the sun. So if you wear a sunblock, you can stay out longer, but you're not any more protected. You may not burn at the surface, but the deeper DNA damage can still be happening. And you don't know it because you're not turning red. So you're not getting the warning to go in from the sun. So the best protection against a sunburn, and yes, obviously sunburns are a big risk for skin cancer. The best protection is a light tan, right? So building up exposure little by little in the beginning of the year, at the beginning of the day, building up your sun exposure so that you build some color in the skin and don't burn. That's the best way to do it. If you wear sunblock, then you won't burn on the surface. You may still be doing deeper damage down below and you're not gonna make enough vitamin D and vitamin D has huge implications in inhibiting cancer. So there is an argument to be made. I'm not saying it's all true all the way down the line, but there is an argument to be made that one of the reasons we are having such a rise in cancer in society as a whole is because we're not getting enough vitamin D, aka enough sun exposure. We've become sun averse. We live indoors. We exercise indoors. We spend hours in front of computer screens not playing out in the sun. As a whole, we're getting less and less sun exposure. And as we have less, we're more vulnerable when we do go in the sun. If you haven't built up that base tan and then you go, you know, you have two weeks holiday a year and you go to Mexico and you fry on the beach, it's probably not a good plan. Mm -hmm. So I encourage my patients not to use sunblock. I encourage them to build a very, you know, a slow and careful tan, not burning. And if they do go, you know, somewhere really hot or they're at risk of more sun exposure than might be good for them, then I recommend that they stay out of the sun and wear a big hat, wear long sleeves, wear clothing that is filtering the sun, stay in the shade. I'm not at all a fan of sunblock. I will confess that I use a sunblock myself on my face because I'm vain enough not to want some of the brown marks I get from the sun. But that aside, I recommend people actually get, get sun exposure. I'm a big believer in sunbathing, actually, and I prescribe sunbathing to people. Hmm. Well, thank you for all that. I feel very validated because that's what I do, the base tan. But I am pretty much a water baby. I love to be in the rivers, the lakes, in the ocean for many hours at a time. And so I started wearing sun, you know, now it's pretty common to find swim shirts and swim pants. Yes. And I wear swim shirts and swim pants. I admit that I feel a little silly sometimes being that covered. But, you know, another big pull to do that was I would spend a lot of time in Mexico and we go to nature reserves and there's a no sunscreen rule because yeah. even even natural sunscreens are very detrimental. Yeah. And I often swim yeah. in natural bodies of water where it's my own alpine lakes, my own rivers, yeah. not that I own them, but <laughs> in my valley. And I don't like the idea of yeah. those chemicals being in our natural waterways too. Yeah, so. you bet. We have a pond on our property and people who live on the farm here in the summer are allowed to swim in it. Absolutely lovely. But we ask people to shower first, to mm -hmm. rinse off, rinse their hair, even if they've got hair products in. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I would love more people to start wearing swim shirts and swim pants. So I feel less silly, but I'm very committed to it. I, and yeah. I, I love not, I love being able to be out for a long time without burning. So yeah. thank you for all of that. Mm -hmm. So Chanchal, I think there's probably a lot of people wondering like what herbs are for cancer? And 
I mean, you could probably relate that 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 is not an uncommon question, right? People want to know what herbs are for cancer. So I'm just going to like throw that can of worms at you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I could throw it right back and say, hmm, what herb isn't for cancer? Mm. But <clears throat> realistically, there are a few herbs that have hit the mainstream news. So we've already mentioned Artemisia annua, Chinese wormwood or sweet annie. Very, very compelling research, specifically in cancer care, as a cytotoxic. It's targeting the cells that are rapidly reproducing, have a rapid metabolism. That's a cancer cell. Other herbs that are more generally beneficial would be things like the turmeric, green tea, the sort of more, more classic generic herbs that could be used for lots of situations, but including cancer. So those are not specifically cytotoxic. They're supportive to the general field of cancer care. But what is really interesting as a clinician, and I tried very hard to get this into the book, is about the cytotoxic herbs. They are poisons and they are not for general use. They are targeted to cells that are replicating too fast. So the book is actually quite was very challenging to write because I was contracted to write a book that the general public would read and enjoy and gain from. But what I found interesting was writing something more for practitioners. Because honestly, there's some very good books out there for the general public, for the patient. There's some really excellent books already. And I didn't know how much I wanted to add to that repertoire. Really, so the book is really two halves. The first part is more for the motivated patient or the care support people. And the second half is really more for the clinicians. And in there, going into the cytotoxic herbs, now we're getting some really interesting herbs that you may be familiar with, but maybe not in this context. So I'm using things like bloodroot, sanguinaria canadensis, and I'm using it topically as an escherotic. Now, this is incredibly controversial because I am not at all promoting self-care with black salve. That is not what I'm talking about. But really carefully managed topical applications of bloodroot for certain skin conditions, certain skin cancers can be really effective. And just to give you context, the creams that the doctors give for actinic keratotis and basal cell carcinoma burn the skin, open the skin, make you bleed and cause substantial liver enzyme elevations and red blood cell deficiencies. Uh, really toxic cream. So with my herbs, we can still see the skin break open and bleed. It's still a dramatic thing to do, but there's none of that systemic toxicity happening. So the patient gets to make a choice. Do I want to burn with poison or do I want to burn without the poison, right? So sanguinaria is an interesting herb that a lot of herbalists have become a bit afraid of and kind of let go of. I use a lot of thuya, cedar, Pacific cedar, thuya occidentalis or thuya plicata. Again, that is a herb that has fallen out of favor with a lot of herbalists because it has some toxicity. It is cytotoxic, and that's why we're using it in cancer, but it does have thujone, and that could cause some brain complications. However, when you really drill down into the dosing, you would have to take an awful lot of the plant material to do any actual harm. And this is what I kept finding. The herbs that have been labeled poison, yes, they work as cytotoxics. They target cells that are rapidly replicating, and they kill them. But the dose to do systemic damage 
is really very different than the dose you need for clinical applications. Even something like Pacific U. So Pacific U is a very interesting plant because the medicine Taxol and various derivatives of Taxol come from the Pacific U bark and indeed other species of U. And it's now a semi-synthetic drug and it's very, very successful for solid tumors for a short window. And then people build up resistance. But in the plant itself, Taxol is one of 27 currently identified diterpenes and several of the other diterpenes inhibit the resistance. So if you have a patient taking Taxol, you absolutely want to use U-extract to delay the resistance, to allow them to use less drugs and get more effect and less side effects because it stays in the target cell. It doesn't spill over to cause collateral damage. But, but most people think of you as dreadfully dangerous and super toxic and don't touch it. It's actually not true. In the right circumstances, the right kind of you for the right person in the right dose. So to me, the herbal medicine, I would say that a big mistake that I made with herbal medicine over my early years of practice was to underestimate what the herbs can do. To actually think that we were somehow ancillary or complementary to some other more remarkable medicines. And I think that was a big mistake. Herbal medicine is profoundly effective and profoundly potent. And I really didn't appreciate that, I think, until I started working in the cancer world about 20 years ago. I've been in clinic over 35 years now, 15 years in general practice and 20 years in a specialty with cancer. And I am more and more and more astonished at what I see in herbal medicine and the outcomes that I see and the tumors shrinking and the side effects diminishing from the chemos. And it's just like, wow, herbs really work. Mm-hmm. You know, hearing that, Shanshal, this is not the first time I felt it, nor will it be the last, but there is a bit of a sadness that this information is not more widely known because how many more people could be benefiting from collaborative care on -hmm. so many levels? Yeah, and I feel really strongly that using the cytotoxic herbs, when you are an experienced clinician, you should be using these herbs and not letting them fall by the wayside. And writing the book was incredibly challenging because I could find some contemporary research on isolates and animal studies and cell lines. And I certainly have access to the eclectic literature from 100, 150 years ago. But there's a huge gap in the middle of that, which is what are herbalists doing? And Mm -hmm. if they are using these herbs, they're jolly well not writing about them. And so I had to bridge from 150 year ago records and research up to contemporary analytical reductionist research and find the evidence base from my clinical practice of how they've been used. But there is, I could not find contemporary clinical literature books written by herbalists or naturopaths or other practitioners using these herbs in clinical practice. So I found it quite shocking, actually, that we've lost that knowledge. Why? I mean, who's not, when are you not using them? I mean, they're being taught in schools, but nobody's doing it or what? I just couldn't find anybody writing about clinical use of these herbs. So I took a punt on it 
I decided to put myself out there in the in the firing line and write that stuff because I believe that you know if you don't use it you lose it. The yeah. herbs work; they deserve to be celebrated and respected and used. And so, for contemporary practitioners, they needed a resource to know how to do that, and that's what I hope I've been able to provide at least at least an opening to that conversation. Well, the herbal material in holistic cancer care is very impressive. The herbs are woven throughout the book, and then there's a whole section of herbs too. And one thing that I especially loved about that is your emphasis on dosage. And you can, I always say, you can tell a clinician from a, say, researcher or uh, whatever, but you can tell if somebody really uses the plants clinically if by how much emphasis they put on the mm -hmm. dosage. And it's there. Mm -hmm. And you use more than a lot than... Like what I was trained in more in Chinese medicine and Ayurveda when I began, which often uses much larger dosages than Western herbalists. Mm -hmm. But I noticed your dosages are quite substantial as well. Mm -hmm. There's not the, you know, take a couple drops of this. No. Yeah, I have a little saying that big disease takes big medicine. And some of my patients are choosing to do complementary herbal medicine instead of mainstream well you know what you got to take a lot if you're going to put this up against chemo then you really need to do herbal medicine and i actually think that a mistake that many herbalists make is not taking enough of the medicine and expecting it to do something amazing i actually had a funny situation last week i have a new volunteer in my garden program and we were having lunch we serve a lunch every week to the garden crew and she said to me that she'd read something about using a herb. I, I don't even know what her condition was. She didn't even tell me that. She said, I, but I, I made this herbal tea and I took a cup a day for a week and nothing happened. I'm like, wow, really? <laughs> she, I, it, it's just extraordinary to me that people expect the herbs to solve all their problems in one cup a day of tea for a week. Now, granted, if you had indigestion and you drank a peppermint tea, it would help you in that moment. And if you had insomnia and you drank some chamomile as strong as I drink it, you'd be knocked out. But most of the time, you do need more medicine and more duration than a lot of people are willing to give it. We all want quick fix these days. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And it is a confusing subject, even commercially. Like one thing that drives me a bit bonkers is you can buy capsules of powdered herbs and on the bottle, it says, you know, take one capsule twice a day. And it's like, you're taking a gram of something that's better often dosed at 10 grams a day, yeah. but that's what says on the bottle. So that becomes what's official. Well, the products have to be labeled on the basis of people doing stupid things. So yeah. they underdose. And I used to, well, I still do some consulting with the Ministry of Health here in Canada. And we spent a long time in the early 90s looking at the regulations of herbal products in Canada. And one of the things we talked about was that they actually require us to have dosing below therapeutic levels on the bottle because of people who say, oh, well, if a little bit is good, more is going to be better. And they slug the whole lot back. Yeah, most of the products that you buy, proprietary branded products, are probably you want to increase the dose from the bottle for most of them. As a clinician, you would do that as a customer and you know not trained you probably follow the bottle but mm -hmm. if we're you know herbalists using some of those branded products we usually override the dosing strategies yeah 
Another gem that I found very interesting in your book is talking about lymphatic herbs, because this is another thing I see people have a lot of questions about. And so the concern is often lymphatic herbs and how it's, I guess, commonly said that they could possibly promote the spread of cancer. So I'm wondering if you yeah. can speak to that. Yeah, it's a real misunderstanding, actually. But I understand how it comes about, because cancer does sometimes spread through the lymphatic system. In fact, you know, when you do a biopsy or, or when they do surgery, they're going to look for perilymphascular spread. So along the blood vessels and along the lymph vessels. And so, yes, it's certainly plausible that cells could leave your tumor, get into the lymphatic system and spread around the body. This is true. However, first of all, lymphocytes need access to their target tissues. In other words, if lymph doesn't flow, then you don't deliver protein particles to the lymph nodes to wake up the lymphocytes to say, hey, we need you to come and do a job. So if you don't have lymph flow, you're actually nullifying a huge piece of your immune system. You have to expose the lymphocytes to the challenge for them to rise to that challenge. So that's number one point. Number two point is cancer is a living tissue. It is your tissue. It's not an alien being that's taken up residence. It grew in your body from your cells. It has a blood supply, has blood going in and blood coming out. Dashi has very poor lymph drainage. Cancer cells, cancers, tumors don't generally build a lot of lymph tissue. The lymph around the tumor will pick up fluids and drain it, but it's not necessarily coming from the tumor itself. But the blood vessels that bring, that they grow fast, angiogenesis is a big factor in development of cancer. You need more blood vessel to bring in the nutrients, the oxygen, the sugar that the cancer wants. And as soon as blood comes into a tissue, by definition, it's going to leave again. So there is a blood flow in and a blood flow out of a tumor. And there are weak walls to those blood vessels in a tumor. They grow so fast, they don't have really good integrity. So fluids and cells can travel in and out quite readily across those blood vessels in the tumor. And that is how cells can break off a tumor, enter a blood vessel and get systemically distributed. But a tumor also has a capsule and there is hydrostatic pressure in that capsule that tends to push things into the blood vessels that have weak walls, and that facilitates metastasis. So what I'm really trying to say is that there's already blood in and blood out from a tumor. There has to be. And if you think that stopping lymph flow is going to stop the spread of cancer, you've just forgotten that actually there's blood leaving that area as well. So the way I approach it is you absolutely want lymph flow. You want to move lymph. You want to drain out stagnation or congestion from tissue. Cancer in an energetic sense is a place of congestion and stagnation. And any stagnant pond grows pond scum, right? So we want to clear it. We want to drain it. And your cancer is already, by the time you're diagnosed, it's probably been in your body three to five years. So what do you think was happening in that time? You think there was no spread? Of course there's spread. If you have cancer, if you've been diagnosed with cancer, you already have systemic spread. I'm sorry, this is a terrible shock to people. 
but it's true because cancer is shedding cells all the time and they're out there in the system. And if your lymphocytes are working properly, then your immune system will take care of those stray cells and get rid of them. If there's no flow in the lymph, you're more likely to get metastasis actually because your lymphocytes are not there to catch the damage. So I actively encourage lymph flow. I use cleavers, I use ceanothus or red root, I use mullein, I do sweats with people and, you know, like steams and heating and skin brushing and all these things to actively encourage lymph flow. Lymphomas may be a slightly different discussion. For the most part, cancer as a whole, you absolutely want lymph flow. You want your lymphocytes engaged in this process. And to do that, you need to expose them. Well, thank you for that very clarifying and in-depth look at that. I really can't say enough good things about holistic cancer care. And there are so many recipes in the book and formulas from many different perspectives. There, I remember there's a breast massage oil with poke root and speaking of lymphatics and teas and all with the dosages in there. And we'll be sharing a recipe from the book on the show notes. You can go to herbswithrosaliepodcast.com to get that. And I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to share with us before we say goodbye, Chanchal. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that happens when you get this diagnosis is that, it, I mean, it knocks the stuffing out of people. They're just in shock, even though intellectually we all know that between one in two or one in three of us is going to get this diagnosis at some time in our life. It might be very small, you know, just a little basal cell that can be taken off in the doctor's office, or it might be a huge catastrophic diagnosis. But nonetheless, you know, between one third to one half of us are going to have cancer in our lifetime. But we somehow, when we get this diagnosis, it still feels like, how did that ever happen? So people are very shocked and very vulnerable. And the medical system that we operate within, which of course, as we all know, is a sickness care system, not a healthcare system, it is incredibly disempowering to patients. Once you get this diagnosis, you're on the conveyor belt and most decisions are made for you with very little opportunity as a patient to have input or to really understand what your choices are or even that you have choices. So I guess my parting words would be, and I hope that the book has imparted some of this as well, is to, to feel more empowered, to, be, to know how much you as an individual can do to resist cancer, to thrive during cancer, and to prevent recurrence, how much you as a patient can do, and then for the practitioners, how much we have to offer the patients. I did not know that for a long time in clinic. And it was a revelation when I realized that herbal medicine is so powerful that yes, absolutely, it has a role to play in cancer care. I'm being careful how I word this because I don't want people to think herbs will cure all cancers. That's not what I am saying. But there is absolutely a role for herbal medicine and nutritional medicine and self-care in the cancer journey, both before 
and right during your cancer journey, you can still be doing a huge amount to help yourself. So if anything, I would really just like people listening to this to, to know how much they can do, how much power we have actually in this situation and take that power back for themselves and engage in the process and not allow themselves to be a passive recipient of somebody else's thoughts. You need to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Mm. Oh, thank you so much. That is a powerful ending. And I, I completely got that from the book, from the opening pages. You said, take time when you get this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I think that in itself is powerful. And yeah, have I mentioned that everyone should get this book? Uh, <laughs> if I haven't, <laughs> everyone should get this book. Because again, it's, as as you said, Chanchal, it's the cancer, something that affects all of us in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And again, I loved all of the recommendations on just staying healthy. And there's so many formulas in there for our nervous system, for our heart, mm -hmm. and so many ways that we can take care of ourselves. So thank you again. I can only imagine what a tremendous amount of work it was to put this book together. And it's truly going to just be an incredible reference and gem and a transformational book for many people. Thank you. I sincerely hope so. Well, thanks again for being here with us, Chanchal. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to head over to the show notes at herbswithrosaliepodcast.com to download your beautifully illustrated recipe cards. That's right. There's two of them this week. There is a recipe for an herbal lotion for neuropathic pain and an herbal cream for radiation burn. Also on the show notes page, you can get a transcript of this show and sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is the best way to stay in touch with me. You can also visit Sean Shaw directly at seanshawcabrera.com. If you want more herbal episodes to come your way, then one of the best ways to support this podcast is by subscribing on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I deeply believe that this world needs more herbalists and plant-centered folks, and I'm so glad that you're here as part of this herbal community. Also, a big round of thanks to the people all over the world who make this podcast happen week to week. Nicole Paul is the project manager who oversees the whole operation from guest outreach to writing show notes to actually uploading each episode and so many other things I don't even know. She really holds this whole thing together. Francesca is our fabulous video and audio editor. She not only makes listening more pleasant, she also adds beauty to the YouTube videos with plant images and video overlays. Tatiana Rusikova is the botanical illustrator who creates gorgeous plant and recipe illustrations for us. I love them. I know that you do too. Christy edits the recipe cards and then Jenny creates them as well as the thumbnail images for YouTube. Michelle is the tech wizard behind the scenes, and Karen is our student services coordinator and customer support. For those of you who like to read along, Jennifer is who creates the transcripts each week. Xavier, my handsome French husband, is the cameraman and website IT guy. Thanks to Rising Appalachia for their beautiful song, Resilience. Find more of their music at risingappalachia.com. It takes an herbal village to make it all happen, including you. Thank you so much for your support through your comments, your reviews, your ratings. I read every review that comes in because they're like a little herbal love letter that brightens my day, like this one. Thank you for your thoughtful and informative podcast. I'm studying to become an herbalist and your episodes lift my spirits whenever I start to feel overwhelmed. Do you love this podcast? If you leave a review for me on Apple Podcasts, 
I may be reading your herbal love letter on the show next. Okay, you've lasted to the very end of the show, which means you get a gold star and this random tidbit. Well, I really appreciated Chanchal's thoughts on so much of what she shared, but especially on taking time once someone receives a cancer diagnosis. I was in the room with my dad when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and I could just register the shock that was on his face as soon as the C word was mentioned. It was probably on mine too. And just as soon as he was diagnosed, like literally within the same breath, the doctor then just immediately rushed in and said that they could schedule the surgery the very next day. And my dad asked him, what is the success rate of this surgery? He typed in a few numbers from my dad's chart and then he told him 56%. And then my dad just looked at me and thankfully I had enough presence to say, no, thank you. We're going to explore other options. So within the week, he was at a holistic cancer center, and later he was a patient at the Madiri Foundation. And he never got the surgery. He took a lot of herbs and was able to manage it all holistically. He sadly died last fall from a combination of heart failure and COVID. And that was 14 years after that diagnosis came in. Which is not to say that no one should ever get surgery for cancer, only that I'm glad we were able to take the time to explore his many options and then able to choose something that worked well for him. 